know, I've had two, I guess I could say I'm quite proud to have had two burnout stories, but, and it may happen again, but what I know next time is that I will bounce forward. We talk about bouncing back. Yeah. I like to think of it as bouncing forward. So each time I'll bounce forward with more tricks, tools, tips, and learnings. This is Reignited, where together we will meet interesting people who have a curious message for the world. They'll tell us about their experiences so that we can all reignite our lives. Wellbeing is one of those things that is I'm very, very passionate about and I have lots of people who I want to talk to around the importance of wellbeing. So today we're going to talk to Annie Harvey, who is a wellbeing educator. So welcome, Annie. I can't wait to hear what you've got to say. Thank you. So before we get started into what you do, uh, you've got some symbols there. What did you choose and why? So I chose this one first, which is my dog, my little labradoodle called Meg. And I don't like the term, but in Australia, she is called my fur baby. Okay. So she, yeah, she's my fur baby. Yeah. And is just wonderful. And she's 10. So she's been through a big journey with me in the last 10 years. Yeah. So an important part of your life. Very much so. Yeah. Cool. Great. What else have you chosen and why? And this one is reminded me of Robert Frost's poem, The Road Less Travelled, and that's what I feel I've done in my life. I haven't quite maybe lived up to the expectations of what people thought I might do as an adult, uh, and I'm still taking The Road Less Travelled. Yeah, so the symbol Annie's got is a a road, um, and so your take on that is The Road Less Travelled. Okay, well, we might come back to that one. And the final one is an anchor. Not anything to do with me loving the sea, but just having anchors in my day that I can bring myself back to, to the present moment. Yeah, great. And we might, that might be a great place to start as far as you do lots of things with mindfulness, laughter yoga, and are a, a wellbeing educator. So what brought you to this? Like, how did you end up in this space where you educate people on their own wellbeing? So I have a few burnout stories. My passion is preventing people from burning out. We're giving them the tools to help them. And I have kind of a corporate burnout story and a teacher burnout story. And that was enough for me to go, okay, I need to be doing something about this now to help others. Yeah, so that personal experience leads you to being able to help very much so, help yeah. others. So where would you like to start with that story? Is there anything that you would like to share with people around that that I guess everyone can relate to a certain degree of stress um, but burnout um, is a whole other level um, of what happens so where would you like to start with that? So I think you can probably hear that I'm not from here originally so I emigrated here 14 years ago yes and when you came for two years I uh, came to follow my dream of trying to be a school teacher having worked in corporate life for 17 years and two what about a year in my parents came to visit at the age of 80 and decided that they were going to come and live here so the two years turned into now 14 years. And I trained at Flinders Uni in junior primary, primary teacher, post-grad, two years, definitely found my calling, absolutely loved it. And I won what was then called the Ruth Probert Award for Beginning Teachers at Flinders Uni. And I got a job for two weeks contract at the end of the training, which if anyone knows any teachers, that's, that's quite a big thing to get a two-week contract straight away. And it was a 44-degree day on my first day of teaching. And being a POM, I didn't realise that kids have to stay inside in 44 degrees. They can't <laughs> go outside. So my thinking, I'll put my feet up and have a coffee 
in the recess and lunch didn't happen. And I think that whole year was like that. I just felt like I hadn't put my feet up at all in that role. And even though I was in my 40s, people I think thought I was worldly wise and I could cope with the job and the stresses that go with a normal teaching job. But a beginning teacher is a beginning teacher and I still needed that support. And like everything that you, when you first start a career or a new educational thing or anything that we start new, it can um, become even harder because you're learning the ropes at the same time as actually having to deliver. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So my two-week contract kept being um, renewed every two weeks. Um, I was covering someone on stress leave and that made programming for the year as a first-year out teacher really hard because I didn't know from week to week whether I was going to be there or not. But I survived the first year and a 44-degree day. And then I got a year's contract with a year one class the following year. And my job really that year was to teach those children how to read. And I was about six weeks into the term, I guess, and um, it was a, just a difficult difficult start to the year for many reasons. But again, I was kind of left to my own devices and I was asked to one afternoon to go and have a meeting about a new child that was starting in my class the next day. And I asked my principal what I should bring to the meeting. And she said, just bring your compassion. Okay. I packed up my bag of compassion in my classroom and my notebook and took it to this meeting and was met by a round table of about 13 people to tell me about a little boy that was starting in my class the next day that had lots of difficulties in life and was seven at the time. And I don't know if you know anything about teacher training, but you don't really get trained very much to teach little boys like David. Mm. And I knew that he had a right to education like every kid, but I didn't really know where to start. So my, my first thought was I'll go to cheapest chips on the way home and buy lots of squidgy toys and a tent thinking he'll probably need a chill down area. Yep. So that lasted quite well for about two days. And what I discovered over a period of just a couple of weeks that I was not only trying to teach these other 26 kids to read, um, but I was really suffering myself by just giving so much of my time and my hours and obviously not giving anything to myself, but I didn't really realise at the time. Mm, so what sort of happens that that constant giving and um, trying to navigate what it's like to be a teacher? Because there's lots of things that are happening in the classroom apart from trying to teach them how to read. Absolutely. Yeah, so w- what was the tipping point for you? Like how did you realise that, oh, I might be a little bit in trouble here? Um, I think because this little boy had so much trauma in his life, and again, I, I didn't have any training on what trauma does to a child's brain or an adult's brain at the time. Yeah, trauma is so complex and, and requires a lot of focus and specialised mm. navigating. So, yeah, mm. so I was hearing stories of things and taking all that on board, and so I was starting to lose sleep, and then I went home to cook supper for my husband one night and opened the cupboard and all my saucepans fell out and made a bit of a noise. And I cried hysterically for two hours. Yeah, so it wasn't just about the saucepans falling out of the cupboard, hey? Yeah. But the noise from it had triggered something inside me. Possibly mm. his scream had triggered and it was, all, it was all just going on. So I took some sick leave. And 18 months after winning this award for beginning teacher, I'd walked away from the teaching profession. Yeah, and it's a huge thing because, you know, the thing that you're passionate about, you trained in it, started doing that and then realising that um, you're giving out so much and feeling 
what's the word you would use on how you're feeling and what sort of happened um, to walk away from the profession? Uh, mm, spent, I think, at the time. Spent. I now know what it Well, I, I know it was burnout, but I think with my research, I've discovered that ironically, having been asked to take my compassion to that meeting, mm. I wasn't giving it to myself. And there is a thing called compassion fatigue, which I think I was actually suffering from. Mm. Yeah, and I definitely work with a lot of people in the art therapy space who uh, have some of the signs. Um, and a question that I ask in lots of my workshops is, how are you and how do you know? But also that sense of giving all the time and being compassionate for others, yet we need to do that to ourselves um, as well. So has that is that what's led you to be focusing on things called the still effect, uh, you know, the things that you stand for now? Yeah, I think um, I, in my 50th year, what came about originally was I started to do, I wanted to do 50 things in my 50th year. I didn't have a bucket list. It was just a case of saying yes to everything, which got me into trouble sometimes. <laughs> and uh, one of the things was to do a TEDx talk. That was actually on my list to do. Yes. And I managed it within that 50th year. That's where we and I connected, it, you mm. and I connected as well. And I had to come up with an, well, I thought I had to come up with an acronym for my talk. And how that came about was I, I bet myself that I could make the town hall in Adelaide, thousand people laugh out loud in three minutes, I think I said at the time. Yeah. And laughed as I pressed enter on the keyboard for the application because I just, there's no chance I'm going to get a chance on that red dot. And yeah. then they phoned two weeks later and said, I've got it. And I said, great, can I have, do I have 10 or 12 minutes? Because that's how long everyone has. And they said, well, you've got three. You asked for three minutes. Yeah. So they doubled it to six and I came up with the acronym um, stop, inhale, listen and laugh. So still, and that's where the still effect was born really. Yeah. So let's talk about the still effect. Um and also that thing of putting it out there that you wanted to do a TEDx talk and what do you know? Here it is. The opportunity is there. So let's talk about the still effect. You said it stands for four different things. Let's start with the first two. It's actually five different things now. Five different mm. things now. now. Oh, you've expanded it. Yes, I have. <laughs> so um, S is for stop and talking about stop the cycle of stress in your body physically. And then T is for take care, and I um, talk about strategic self-care plans and what that looks like. I is for inhale, L is for listen, and L is and the last L is for laugh. Yeah. So let's. Start. Why is it important? We'll go. Maybe we'll go through each of those elements because I think it's really important for people to consider this. Mm. Why is it important to stop? So the the S for still. I think we many people that I know certainly live on the fact that they are this B-U-S-Y word. I'm trying to ban it from my vocabulary, even though it's actually written on the front of my book, so I need to put a big white <laughs> cross through the next reprint. But. I like to, I've actually changed the terminology instead of saying busy, I'll say I'm full because quite often um, I'm full and busy because I love what I'm doing, um, but it's when it becomes detrimental that it's a problem, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And I think people live in that with that badge of honour that they're busy and, you know, you can go to the supermarket at nine o'clock in the morning and someone say, have you had a busy day? nine o'clock in the morning no not yet yeah or sometimes I'll say no no I haven't and people don't know what to say yeah or I, I quite often observe people being busy being busy um it's really interesting isn't it if we stop and think about our language mm. and our construct around busyness yeah. yeah yeah so it's important to stop 
Yeah. Anything so the, else with that that you'd like to explain? The stopping for me is a couple of things really, stopping and, and self-reflecting, and that can take a period of time. But for me, it's using that anchor of coming back to the present moment as much as possible, and that's part of the mindfulness I teach, but not just the formal meditation, just around having those moments to notice when we have got heightened stress in our body, which is most of it is unconscious anyway, and to stop and just take a couple of breaths or look around for some colours or ground yourself with your feet yeah, and then move on. And if you can do that as many times as you can throughout your day when you're not feeling stressed or don't realise that you are, then that has a huge ripple effect. Yeah, so does that counteract the stress? Yeah, it's if just turning, turning down the stress volume, turning not necessarily off the fight or flight, but turning it turning the volume down. Yeah, mm. right. And so the T, which used to be part of STOP, um, is now take care. What? Why is that important and why should we be doing that? Because we talk about self-care all the time. We do. But what's your take on that? I often say that it's it's not about bubbles and Band-Aids, I think. You know, we can Google what self-care is and we all know what it means, but whether we're doing it healthily and just to have a few different ideas. So one of the things I talk about is a thing around around decision fatigue. And that was really when I was a teacher about imagining how many decisions a teacher has to make every day with a class of 30 little customers in their room. Mm. And it's huge. And if you and it depletes your energy, it depletes your willpower. And then people get surprised when they can't go to the gym at the end of their working day or whatever. So I started looking into decision decision fatigue. It's actually a thing. Yeah. And then how and how I can reduce my decisions during my day. So an examples of that might be I know every night before I go to sleep what I'm going to be eating three times the next day because it's on my fridge. Um, I might I know what I'm going to wear the next day if I'm going if I've got an appointment or I know which route I'm going to drive to work. So just as many decisions can, can be taken out of my day, so I've I've got enough energy to get through it. Yeah, I really like that. And I remember a couple of years ago I went to a retreat in Bali, and the thing it was for a week long. And the thing that I loved and really highlighted to me, I didn't have to make a decision for a whole week, mm. and how liberating that was. Actually. All I needed to decide was what I was going to eat off the banquet. Like, you know, it was a pretty tough life. But it did make me realise that sometimes we can make things easier yeah, um, by not having to make so many decisions. And that's why, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs or well-known people will wear the same clothes every day because it's, I don't exactly have to make right. a decision on that. That's what Steve Jobs did, yeah. Yeah, yeah, mm. definitely. So that sense of taking care, is there anything else you would like to add my, my big thing would be around healthy relationships. Yes. So having the right people. Jim Rohn once said that we're the average of the five people we spend most time with. Yeah, so true. So, and I think about when I left teaching and started a business, started a tutoring business, um, a lot of my colleagues would say, well, you know, why are you starting a business? You don't know anything about it and just go to another school, try another teaching job. And uh, I it felt like it brought me down and I needed the right people in my circle of influence to raise that average with regards to how you start a business as a woman in Adelaide, for example. Yeah, definitely. So I didn't, as I say, I didn't marry condo my friends and look <laughs> at them and say they don't bring me joy, throw them yeah. away. But I just chose to spend a bit less time with some people over the first year of business. Yeah. Um, and then sure enough, they came knocking on the door asking for jobs a couple of years later. Yeah, so that... <laughs> That thing of who we surround and what we consume and the attitudes that we have around is a prime example of how we can take care of ourselves. Mm. Um, and the other thing that comes to mind with that, I quite often 
ask my clients to sort of consider what do I need right now um, when you get caught up in everything that's happening around you. And sometimes it's saying no to that party that you feel you should go to or, you know, all of the things that happen. Taking care of ourselves works on many, many different levels, doesn't it? It does. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the S and T for the still effect. What's the I? So the I is for an inhale. So that's the mindfulness part. And how I originally got into mindfulness was um, when my mum was diagnosed with Alzheimer's about seven years ago. I was going to the GP with her and obviously coming across as quite stressed and very emotional, of course, about it all. Yeah, such a huge, huge thing to go through. And my doctor, uh, her doctor said, why don't you try this thing called mindfulness? I don't, apparently it works. I don't know what it's like. So you know, I went off and, as many people do, downloaded an app and read a book. And just those few weeks of practice allowed me to be really present with mum. So when she'd tell the story about her you know, when she was nine years old, she'd repeat it 20 times. Yeah. I still had all those really strong natural emotions going on inside, but I could be present and listen with what we call beginner's mind, like it was the first time she told the story each time. Okay. And that was a huge gift to give to her and myself at the time. There's lots of people, and, and we'll talk about the inhale and the breath and how important that is as well, but there's lots of people who talk about and I'm probably one of them in in some aspects, who talk about meditation and mindfulness, I can't do it, you know, I can't visualise or sit there and be in a Zen position for all this time. What do you say to those people? Or what's your advice to them? Mostly people say that when they haven't had a go at it first. Mm. So it's about finding the right, the right teacher or the right book to get you into that mode. Um, meditation is a practice to have a mindful attitude in your life, really. That's how I see it. So it's like going to the gym and that's your your mental fitness practice, but how fit you are is how mindful and how present and how focused you can be during your day. So it's I, I call it like an attitude of mindfulness as opposed to, and I'm obviously not a meditator walking around the place as people would expect me to look. Yeah. But I can be calm and present and give a gift of listening, for example, and that all comes from the formal meditation practice each morning. Yeah, me. yeah. And that thing of we we can sometimes focus on our physical health, but our mental fitness is just as important. And we've talked in lots of podcasts about this um, as well. But I guess for me, quite often I'll talk to people about that it doesn't always look like you imagine it would look like, mm. um, that it, you don't necessarily need to be sitting in a yoga pose and be sitting there for 30 minutes, that it can work on many different levels. And I know you're you're sort of about that and your book has lots of lots of lots of little tips in there for people to be mindful in everyday life. Yep. I've just worked with a group of people in locally and one guy in particular said the thing I took from the teaching was the kettle meditation. Yes. And, you know, many of us, especially working at home at the moment, would run downstairs and or turn the shower on, run downstairs, turn the kettle on, go back up, have the shower, think about worry about your day, come back down speed drink the coffee or tea mm. and um, there are other ways that you can start your day and it could be just watching the kettle boil because it does eventually boil mm. and not do anything else. But our mind tells us that we have to race around in that two minutes and fill it. Yeah, yeah. And about experiencing it fully, um, you know, whether you're eating, having a shower and, and noticing the water on you or, you know, it can work in lots of different levels and I know your book 
um, the little book of steel mm-hmm. <laughs> really has so many useful things that we can use in everyday life. Mm. Yeah. So the inhale, that's about the in-breath and the out-breath. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I mean, mindfulness doesn't, um, it's not a meditation where you have to breathe in any particular way. Um, it's about noticing the sensation of breathing. Mm. But it's also uh, part of the thing I teach actually in the stop part of still is around the longer exhalation. So if we can hack into our nervous system and switch off the sympathetic nervous system, which is an ironic word really because it's not very sympathetic, the fight or flight. (laughs) Yeah, it's quite intense actually. It is. Um, And if we can double that exhalation, then we're going to be able to do that. So, you know, I call it the double breath or whatever. There's four, seven, eight breathing, but I often find that quite hard to do so I just think of a double number mm. and I teach it to kids with maths as well so can you double double four and how long have you got to breathe out for oh, eight and teach them to do it through blowing bubbles or um, soft toys on their belly and that kind of thing so or even adults to do that just mm. because we often are told to take a deep breath or calm down but yeah. we're not actually taught how to do it yeah and what does that do when we do take a deep breath and what does that do for our whole sense of of wellness and being? I've just got to try it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have tried it. <laughs> and I do know, but it, it does actually physiologically change things yeah. and is beneficial because it does, um, you know, stop the fight or flight response. Mm. Um, you can and, just, and you just feel like, I call it like a, a gear shift, I guess. You just feel like a slight shift in your physiology, but you have to practice it. Mm-hmm. And you have to notice, and to practice it while you're not stressed is the best thing. But yeah, yeah. So you're becoming a habit. Yeah, yeah. So I've got a situation with visiting my dad at the moment in aged care, and I it's always quite a stressful visit. So on the way there in my car, I will do that. You know, for a four minute drive, five minute drive, I will do that deep double breath pretty much all the way there. So I've done it the opposite way around. Instead of getting stressed first and doing it the way home, I turn down that volume really low before I get there. And that yeah. seems to really help. So it's sort of like it that turning down the volume prevents it yeah. raising. Um, do it rising. other ways. I, yeah. sing, I sing at the top of my voice to loud 80s tracks as well and get very funny looks at the traffic lights. <laughs> yeah, but, go the 80s. Yeah, hmm. nothing like cranking um, tunes exactly. in the car. <laughs> That's good. So the L in the first L in still is listen. Why is that important? Uh, for me, it was around the transition from a business of tutoring children to my to the well-being side of my business. And it was going into work on a daily basis, still loving working with kids, but noticing that what I was doing, and it wasn't until I was asked, what are my values, what are my strengths, that that daily role was not aligned with them anymore. Yeah. That they had changed. I mean, most people's values will change over a period of adulthood, but mine had really changed. And... There was something that was just not was not right each day and I couldn't pinpoint until somebody asked me what those were. So, uh, yeah, I work with people on how they can find out what their values are because actually if you ask a lot of people, they won't know what to say or they mm. might just say family, which is great, but what else is there? Yeah, um, and what does that actually mean? Mm. Yeah, yeah. And so, our values are actually our sense of who we are and they can shift and with different as we get into different age brackets, they certainly do shift. Yeah. Um, so how does the listen come into that? It's about being tr- true to yourself. So so understanding what they are first, however you go about doing that. 
And then listening to, for me, it was about listening to my body language when things weren't aligned with my values mm. more than anything. Yeah. I mean, li- you know, I could listen to our crazy negative brain a lot of the time, but I listen to my body and I know pretty soon if it's not aligned. Yeah. With so strengths. is that a little bit of that gut feeling and mm. and just that sense of being that comes from within taking yeah. notice of that yeah, for yourself? Mm. Yeah. And also around the gift of listening. So I work with quite a lot of parents, you know, of teenagers. Teenagers know when you're not, they're not listening. Yeah, they've got the biggest not. bullshit meters there is ever out yeah. there. Yeah. So if you can give the gift of listening, which, you know, mindfulness is a perfect training for that on how to be really present and not just use your ears. There's a beautiful um, Japanese symbol for the word listen, and it involves the ears and the heart and the mind. Mm. And not just these things that we think. So people want to be heard, not mm. necessarily. I like to say that it's about listening to understand rather than fix. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Go, oh, can you do that? And I know in my therapy training, we quite often talk about, well, we're actively listening as a therapist all the time, but the difference between hearing and listening. Um, yeah. Mm. Um, hearing to answer or to actually listen and understand, which is what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not just about, the ears. It's about the whole being. Mm. Yeah. Anything else? And I think what also comes to mind with that is that whole sense of using our senses and that's what your mindfulness is about, isn't it? It's tapping yeah. into the whole sense of who you are and, and accessing those things so that you can actually move through. And one yeah. of my favourite meditations is a sound meditation, which you can do anywhere. And people say, oh, it has to be really quiet for me to meditate. And you know, going back to those saucepans falling out of the cupboard, that's loud noises are still a trigger for me from that classroom years ago, 10 years ago now, actually. Um, but I'm able to be around those noises and notice that I'm triggered and have the grounding mechanisms to not react like I used to, I guess, with the two hours of crying. and Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, so I'm able to be with those what we call frustrating noises, whether it's the leaf blower, that's the thing that gets me most of the time. I can be with it. I can notice the tone of it. I can watch the person that's using it and just listen to that actual sound rather than blocking it out because that's that whole suppression all the time is just going to come back even louder. Yeah, so rather than being triggered by it, it's noticing it. And what does that then do? Like is it that you feel removed from it or you're able to manage it or can you explain Because the, the notice is normally the uncomfortable feeling, so which you know might trigger a memory or the other way around. And I now know through training that the uncomfortable feeling in my body isn't going to kill me. And that's the thing I was scared of. So if I can learn to be as present as possible and actually notice where I'm... So normally it would be in my throat and I would be just be able to notice and be curious about it. Curiosity is my top strength, so I use that all the time and most of the time it goes away. Yeah. And then I've forgotten what I was worrying about anyway. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really important um, to know that when we're uncomfortable, there's information there for us. And and I obviously sit in a space where people have discomfort a lot Mm. um, with emotions or experiences and things like that. But it's about trying to be with it rather than avoid it because the more we avoid it, it comes out in other ways. Yeah. That beach ball you push down into the pool or the ocean. Yeah. And bounce back and hit you in the face. Yeah, and go pretty high at some mm. point. And mm. That could hurt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. So let's talk about the last L. 
Because this is a really interesting one and um, something that we've talked a lot about. So would you like to explain what, what the last L is in steel? So the last L is laughter. And this came about by, I went to the Happiness and its Causes conference maybe five years ago to yeah. watch the Dalai Lama speak. And in the breakout session, my friend and I were looking for different things and we could learn how to power nap. I'm quite good at that, so I didn't need to do that. <laughs> it's a very, very, very good thing for your That's brain. Right, <laughs> skill to have. And the other thing was this thing called laughter yoga. And I thought, I don't really like yoga. And she said, I don't think it's got any yoga in it. I think <laughs> that they're just all standing in their normal clothes. Let's go and try it. So, so there's no it. downward dog? No downward dog at all. Okay. No. And half an hour later, I almost... I was on such a high and I had to calm myself down to then go back into the auditorium to watch the Dalai Lama come onto stage. <laughs> Quite a contrast. It was, um, but a very memorable day. And I remember thinking, I want to train in this. I want to take this feeling back to Adelaide and train other people. Yeah. So what's happened with that? So I trained as a laughter yoga leader straight after with my husband, actually, and Done all sorts of things with it. We've started um, a free laughter yoga club, which um, there are something like a thousand of those around the world now. Great. Not at the moment because of the obvious reasons we can't do the live laughter at the moment. Um, but there are ways that you can do it through Zoom, lots of free clubs doing it at the moment. And I think the thing for me was because I was practicing so much, I was really realizing the benefits of what we call unconditional laughter. So conditional laughter is conditioned by humour and funny movie or a joke or whatever, but sometimes we don't feel like laughing to the joke. Unconditional is, um, I hate to say fake it till you make it, but it's a bit like that. <laughs> yeah. In that we do lots of deep breathing. That's where the yoga part comes from. And that obviously helps with our physiology and lots of rhythms and clapping and then we go into laughter activities and it's a lot of fun. And the brain, the body doesn't know the difference between the forcing the laughter to start with or real laughter. So often I'll have clients will say, well, I don't, I've had a really bad morning. I don't feel like laughing. And I'll say, just give it a try anyway. And when you're in a group, it's quite contagious. So within minutes, normally people are laughing quite naturally. Mm. So... And I know you did this on the TEDx stage. Um, you've got a thousand people to <laughs> laugh out loud. <laughs> Thank um, you, Adelaide. They were amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it was great. And I, I actually watched it the other day. I went, yeah, that was so cool. So why is it important? Because our body doesn't know the difference between whether it's fake or, or real. And obviously when you do it in a group, there's a ripple effect in that collective consciousness, I guess. Mm. Why is that so important? Uh, for me, it was a, a healing, I think, and I managed to, you know, through the stuff with my mum, I managed to find the joy again because I really told myself I, I feel guilty. I can't watch a funny movie, but I was able to do this laughter and I have routines that I do myself a few times in the bathroom mirror yep. during the week, for example, and it it's it's a great social connection for people. Um there are lots of health benefits behind it, obviously. And it, um, but for me, it was around it can release all four really great chemicals. For it. it releases dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins all at the same time. Wow. And it's completely free, and we can do it wherever we want. Yeah. Mm. And it doesn't have to be anything funny or, you know, so the benefits of laughter is something that people probably don't don't talk about. No. Um, 
quite as much. But we as know we how much, how good we feel when we've had a good laugh. Yeah, with friends. Yeah, definitely, and mm. it, it's your whole body. Yeah, definitely. So <laughs> we'd be hesitant to do this because I'm like, oh, we can. How do you do the fake laughter? Like, how do you just do? You just launch in, or what's your routine when you look in the mirror? When I look in the mirror, yeah. So, um, and you you can have um certain frustrations. So, if you think about um, you know, troubles of the week, something that's frustrated you, and you'll f- ask what emotion it is and where do you feel it, and then you'll turn that emotion into something based around the thing. So, say someone's washing machine. That's normally a fridge or a washing machine's broken. That's what I get quite a lot of initially. <laughs> and we will all turn into pretending to be washing machines and run around the room laughing at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds really crazy. You kind of, without seeing it or hearing it. Yeah. Um, I have been at a couple of workshops where where you've done it and it is, yeah, if someone walked into that room, they'd be just like, (laughs) what is going on? But you can feel the energy really rise. And, you know, I get a little bit uncomfortable with doing these things, but it ends up that I'm laughing at the people laughing and it just becomes natural and, you know, it's just this massive release. Yeah. And because of the chemicals it releases, it's it's a really good natural painkiller. So I remember the very first club we opened in Glenelg, um, we can't charge for it. And this lady tried to put $5 in my husband's back pocket. And he said, no, no, we can't take the money. And she said, seriously, I need to pay you because I've just gone through a really hideous divorce. I've had a hip replacement and I feel the best I have felt in two years. Yeah. And that was from 40 minutes of laughter and breathing and yeah. connecting and yeah so it just works on lots of levels so so you can just do a fake laugh absolutely i hate using the word fake because it's actually real yeah but you know just let it out and i think if anyone watches your tedx they would know uh, they so would know yeah without doing it my morning routine would be um most people would floss their teeth so i would put imaginary floss through my teeth and uh, or sorry not through my teeth through my ears yeah and that would be mental floss so I just squeak it through a few times. See, you're already laughing. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> you're not going to join in with me, are you? <laughs> and then I would put some, instead of moisturizer, I put some laughter cream on. And even just, you know, seeing, um, I suppose it's the mirror neurons. How would that work if I'm looking in the mirror at myself? But it does work. Yeah, it does. And just for a few minutes. And again, that's switched down the volume of the fight or flight at the yeah. start of my day. Yeah. It seems so simple and um, but it's very complex in what it actually does mm. um, and the benefits are huge. Mm. So is there anything um, that we haven't spoken about as far as wellness and well-being and looking after yourself and the still effect that you would like to, to sort of talk about? I think just just for me it's around there are some really simple things that you can do. It, I think it becomes, because we often put ourselves to the bottom of the list, you know, and it's that it's that cliche of the oxygen mask. I know we hate hearing it, but it is about looking after yourself first to be a better parent, a better partner, a better peer. Um, and there are some really tiny things that, you know, it's like adding into your bank account, I guess. Yeah. Put the credits in each day. And I think, um, I mean, I haven't talked much about my burnout and what's happened in my life, but it's very hard to come back um, from it. And I know I work with people who have compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma and have totally um, burnt out, is it that we need to be preventing and turning that volume down so that we don't get to that explosion, yeah. exploding point where so, we can't come back anymore? And that's why I call myself an educator, I guess. It's about mm. understanding what it is and how it feels first. 
yeah you know to give yourself that check-in um definitely preventing but i also talk about you know i've had two i guess i could say i'm quite proud to have had two burnout stories but and it may happen again but what i know next time is that i will bounce forward we talk about bouncing back yeah i like to think of it as bouncing forward so each time i'll bounce forward with more tricks tools tips and learnings to meet the next one if it comes yeah so so those and i guess you're doing that daily practice um in all of these things because you don't just teach it you actually live it um as well which is very evident in um what you do um as well so if you had one message for the world like what would be your your thing if you could give any piece of advice or tip or anything on life what would that be be kind to yourself but, but really know how to do that yeah why why be kind to yourself because i've learned that you really can't be kind to others unless you're kind to yourself yeah it starts but it's very us. hard yeah and i think um our society family structures lots of things and messaging that we get is that we have to be give 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 and we forget about ourselves in that so that real coming back to you and what you need um as well yeah yeah so that we can prevent the burnout and the stuff that goes with it so is there anything else that you would like to have as closing remarks or things because this is so full of such rich information that we all need to be reminded of you know we sit in the in the wellness space um but it's always great to be reminded and have those practical tips as well is there anything else you think that we might need to pinpoint i think you need to go and watch the tedx talk yes <laughs> that's not a promo or a plug but just to see what the laughter looks like and yes. i think i've never met anyone that hasn't laughed just by watching it mm. and for me that's a ripple effect yeah, definitely. So if you, and I had a guy watch it the day with his seven-year-old daughter and phoned me to say, wow, we really needed that. They're in yeah. the Philippines having a tough time and they just phoned. So we literally just watched it and we all laughed as a family. Thank you. Yeah, and I think particularly at this time of our life when we are in incredible lockdown and, and things happening because of the pandemic, um, it's even more important, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, because we we can be isolated. Mm. Mm. And don't feel selfish about laughing. No. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? There's something behind that um, when we can have that guilt and selfishness. They and can come to you and work through the process the guilt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'll process the guilt <laughs> and he will help you laugh. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And do the stuff like that. So um, how do people get in touch with you, Annie? So my website is thestilleffect.com.au. Yeah, and you have the little book of still and, of course, the TEDx talk as well. So... Um, thank you for spending time with us and sharing um, such gold and, you know, information that is so useful and practical. And I know you're about trying to turn the volume down on stress. Um, and we were talking before about the fact that we need to prevent it and do these practices so that it doesn't get to crisis point. Um, yeah, so thank you for sharing you. everything with us. Thank you. For show notes and more information about my guests and to get in touch with me, visit igniteartherapies.com.au.